Father, I pray that you would be with us now as we even turn our attention upon Second Timothy, uh, the serious nature of ministry and of life. This is no laughing matter when it comes to how we live and the struggles we have and the ways to endure. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us, keep us, protect us, strengthen us for the task. I pray even you'd help my message now to sink into the hearts of these wonderful people whom I love greatly and would long that you might um, do your work among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a little poem I want to read for you. Defeat. He lay there silently. All, all hope had fled away. So far behind, so error prone. I can't make it all the way. I've lost, so what's the use, he thought. I'll live with the disgrace. But then he thought about his dad, who soon he'd have to face. Get up, an echo sounded low. Get up and take your place. You weren't meant for failure here. Get up and win the race. With borrowed will, get up, it said. You haven't lost at all. For winning is no more than this, to rise each time you fall. So up he rose to run once more, and with a new commit, he resolved that win or lose, at least he wouldn't quit. Three times he'd fallen stumbling, and three times he rose again. Now he gave it all he had and ran as though to win. They cheered the winning runner as he crossed the first the line first place, head high and proud and happy, no falling, no disgrace. But when the fallen youngster crossed the line last place, the crowd gave him the greatest cheer for finishing the race. And even though he came in last with head bowed low on proud, you would have thought he won the race to listen to the crowd. And to his dad, he sadly said, I didn't do so well. To me, you won, his father said. You rose each time you fell. And now when things seem dark and hard and difficult to face, the memory of that little boy helps me in my race. For all of life is like that race with ups and downs and all. And all you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. Quit. Give up. You're beaten. They still shout in my face. But another voice within me says, get up and win the race. It's a poem about running the race, metaphorically applied to life. And it is true that God's praise doesn't go to the swiftest runner. God's praise doesn't go to the one who never stumbles. God's praise goes to the one who finishes. And God's praise goes to the one who finishes well. Proverbs 24, verse 16, A righteous man will fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked stumble in time of calamity. So it's getting up. It is continuing on. It is doing until the end. And just think about those in the Bible who stumbled badly. They're all over the Bible. Moses murdered a man in cold blood. Exiled for 40 years. And yet he came back to uh, lead the people of Israel into the Promised Land. Although he struck the rock twice and didn't obey the Lord, he still had a desire to go in and would have willingly gone in with a, a right heart had in that one incident not prevented him. David, after walking with God for years, stumbled in adultery. And yet he continued faithful to the end. Saul of Tarsus was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. And yet he found mercy and he fought the good fight. He finished the course and he kept the faith. 
Peter denied Jesus three times, but later was restored to ministry and became a rock in the church. John Mark deserted Paul and Barnabas and Paphos when he saw how difficult the ministry was. You ever read at the end of 2 Timothy that he's most useful to Paul? He'd been restored again. And that's the Christian life, the Christian ministry. The prize not goes to the one who finishes with a flash in the pan. The price goes to the one who finishes well, not to the one who has a flash in the pan. That's what I want to say. Because there are many flashes in the pan. Right? Jesus even said that. You sow the seed and some sprout up quickly. But some, the worries of the world get them because they're on rocky soil and the, the, the weeds get up and choke them. But it's to the one who bears fruit and sustains until the end. And let me just say that rare is the one who finishes well. I've read several sources. For every ten men who set their hearts upon training for Christian ministry, one will be in Christian ministry at the end of his life. I think that's pretty true. Think about the numbers who didn't do well. The twelve spies, the land of Canaan. Twelve spies were like the leaders in the land. They weren't chosen because they were pansies. They were chosen because they were strong leaders. And they went in and ten of them didn't finish well. Only two, Joshua and Caleb, who actually got in to enter the land, finished well. Consider Saul or Solomon. Both were entrusted with ruling the kingdom of Israel, and yet, in the end, they finished poorly. Saul finished a raving maniac. Solomon finished as a pleasure-seeking fool. Consider Judas and Demas. Both knew the intimacy with a strong spiritual leader, and yet both forsook their leader. Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Demas loved the present world and deserted Paul. It's not only true of spiritual leaders, it's true of people as well. Some people don't end well. Ananias and Sapphira. They saw everybody selling their property giving the proceeds to the apostles to distribute to the poor. So they sold their property. It was okay. It's good. But they held some back and lied about how much they gave. They wanted to seem big and their last deed was lying to the Holy Spirit before they breathed their last. Before you get too discouraged, though, there are those who stay faithful until the end. Abraham, Job, Joseph, Joshua, Caleb, Elijah, Jeremiah, Daniel, John, Paul, Peter. They all finished well. And we can finish well too. If you haven't done so already, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-7 through is my text. It talks about finishing well. It talks about enduring. It talks about keeping on until the end. Let's read it. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. These verses talk about enduring. They talk about enduring ministry. Focusing some on Timothy himself, how to endure in the ministry. Some upon a ministry in general so the church carries on. Some upon the sustained effort that an enduring ministry will, will take. 
Appropriately, my message this morning is entitled Enduring Ministry. We're going to see three ways how to have a ministry endure, how to have an enduring ministry, how to make it through the rigors of ministry, and what's true of ministry is also true of Christian life as well. My first point is this, be strong in grace. That's what Paul says in verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. These words are coming strong off of verses 15 through 18. I mean, you can even see it there. You therefore, my son, be this way. Because we've seen in verse 15 about how all deserted Paul. Verse 15, you are aware, Timothy, of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. They didn't finish well, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. And then we see this one man who, who was doing well, Onesiphorus who Paul even prayed in the end when he's standing before the Lord that God would give him great mercy that he might finish well. Verse 16, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord granted him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. So here was Onesiphorus, right, continuing on and doing well. So you got those who didn't, who fell away, who deserted Paul. Onesiphorus who did. I said, now, now you, this is who you need to be like. You need to be like Onesiphorus. You need to, to press on until the end. You therefore, my son. He's grabbing his shoulders of Timothy. He's shaking him and saying, listen, Timothy. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Don't desert. Continue and press on. In light of these men, do the right thing. Don't give up. Be faithful until the end. Be strong in grace. You say, what does that mean? Be strong in grace. Well, I think it means faith. It means trusting. It means trusting in the power of Christ rather than the power of my own strength. See, he didn't say what the opposite might be is, you therefore, Timothy, my son, right, be really strong in yourself. He didn't say that. He said, be strong, how? In the grace that's in Christ Jesus, right? Trusting in Him. Constantly praying to the Lord for strength, right? In such a way that God will help you endure. God, help me. Help me endure. Help me carry through. Be my strength. Always praying. That's the only way that you'll endure in the Christian life. It's constantly be praying prayers of help to God. Bill Mills and Craig Perrow of Leadership Resources have written an excellent book called Finishing Well. It deals with the problem of pastoral burnout when pastors lose heart so they can't continue in the ministry any longer. And in the introduction of this book, they write this, We began our project realizing that burnout in the ministry is a terrible problem today. We knew that many of our brothers and sisters struggle with burnout and that some would fall. And although we wanted to bring some help from the Scriptures to encourage their hearts, the more we studied God's Word and talked with pastors and missionaries and denominational leaders, the more we realized how wrong we were. Not only is burnout widespread today, in fact, burnout is inevitable. In addition to our own weaknesses, we face pressures and demands and expectations as well as battles with Satan. And as a result... Every one of us will burn out unless God is there present with us in the ministry. And so they wrote this book, Finishing Well. They go through many characters of the Bible say, how is it they finished well? How is it they finished well? And they finished well really by looking to God and looking to Him for strength. Or, right here, letting the grace of Christ instruct in them. 
That's what Paul's saying. Timothy, let God be there with you. Let, let the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let, let grace fill you. Let grace move you. And be strong in that grace. It's in Christ Jesus. I think Paul was passing this on to Timothy by way of personal experience. Maybe remember Paul had a difficulty. He had a thorn in the flesh. Maybe it was a physical ailment. Maybe it was another person or a demonic spirit. We don't know. But he had this thorn in the flesh that was painful and Paul wanted to get rid of it. And so he prayed the Lord three times. God, please remove this thorn. It's painful. And God said no. And again he prayed, remove this please. He said no. And again, please remove it. And God said no. Rather, God didn't leave them all alone. God said no, you've got to tough it up on your own. That's never the message of the Bible. The message of the Gospel is that God, God calls us to a standard that we, we can't get there, but there's one who's lived the standard for us. And He will come and help us in these things. The Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what God says. He says, No, I won't take the thorn away, but My grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. There it is. God's grace is given to Paul. It's sufficient for Paul. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for Timothy as well. And Paul knew that, heard that, and he learned from that. He said, very well then, 2 Corinthians 12.10, Most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weaknesses so the power of Christ may dwell within me. I'm going to boast that I'm weak because then Jesus is strong in me and that gives glory to God and that sustains me. It's a win-win situation is what he's saying. Be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Paul had experienced it. 1 Corinthians 15, he said, I labored more than all the apostles. And yet he said, not I, but the grace of God within me. 1 Corinthians 15.10 It was God's grace within him that gave him the strength and the energy to press on, to labor hard until the end. He wasn't working himself. He knew that God was working in him. And that's what Paul's urging Timothy to do. Be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Let that grace dwell in you. And see God strengthen you that. And, and God's grace is available. We saw in Hebrews 4 as we went through that passage that, that He sits there at the throne of grace and just waiting to give us grace to those who ask. He's ready to give grace and mercy to those who ask in time of need. So if you have time of need, which is every moment of every day, ask and grace comes and you'll be strengthened and that will help you continue on. It's the only way to protect from burnout. It's the only way to have ministry endure. It's the Spirit of Jesus when He says, apart from Me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. Zip. Apart from Me. So why would we want to walk apart from Him? Why not walk in the grace that's in Christ Jesus? It's true of the Christian ministry. true of the Christian life. If we think we can do it on our own, we're arrogant and misguided. It's trust in the Lord Jesus. You want enduring ministry? You want a fire that, that burns white hot for Jesus? Be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Secondly, you want to have an enduring ministry? Train the trainer. I'm getting that from verse 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And at this point, Paul even shifts a little bit here. It's not so much focusing on Timothy and his own personal walk. Rather, it's focusing upon Timothy and his ministry to the church there at Ephesus. He wants to make sure that his work is an enduring work. He wants to make sure that the work carries on. And Paul's counsel is this. Okay, Timothy, you take what you've heard from me. Lots of things you've heard from me. You've heard the Gospel from me over and over again. You've heard about Christ and Him crucified. You've heard about the doctrines talk talking about. You've heard about the supremacy and sovereignty of God. You've heard of the priority and the power of the Word. All these things. Whatever you have learned from me, 
take that. Also take my life and my teaching, my example, my suffering, everything that I am that's God-honoring. You take that and then you find some men. These aren't just any men, but these are faithful men. even says there, entrust these to faithful men. You find faithful men. You find men who are available and who are around have the time for this. You find teachable men who can be taught because those who teach must first be taught. Right? You have faithful men who will be able to teach. Get capable men. They will be able to teach others also. You find these men and then you take everything that I have taught you and you pour into their lives with an expectation that they will take what you're teaching them and they will pass that on to others. I trust you can see that. Preachers oftentimes point to four generations. It's Paul passing on to Timothy. Timothy passing on to these men who are capable and able to pass on to other men. And the implication is this, is that you're expecting these men to pass it on. You're expecting these men to pass on what they've learned. And one of the things they've learned is, Timothy passing it on, is you need to find faithful, available, teachable, capable men as well so that you can pass them along. And then with the expectation that they would pass it along and so on and so on and so on and so on. That's what I mean by training the trainer, right? Timothy was to train not just a person, but he's supposed to train someone who will train instead. For the ministry in the church to continue strong, there needs to be a training mentality. This needs to be. Paul said in Ephesians 4.11, leaders of the church are given to equip the saints, right? To train the, train the saints for the work of service, the building up of the body of Christ. It's a training ministry, training mindset. I love how that works at Rock Valley Bible Church. I mean, just... We see this happen all the time, and it, it happened again. And Carol and Carl Kotke, many of you know, were in a motorcycle accident. And uh, baby's fine with Carol, amazingly. Um, but she busted up her leg pretty bad. Shattered her leg, really. Um, it took Carl just two phone calls, and the church just surrounded out. Maybe more. Did Carl call you, Tina? I know you put an email out. Call Michelle. Okay. She called, he called you, Michelle. He called me. And um, news starts spreading and people start visiting. I know that the Reach, you came in after surgery on Friday night. And the Weebies, you were there last night, I think. And the Guskies, you're bringing food to Carl today. And I said to Carl, you know, we've got a lot of people ready to help you and serve you. Um, you just, whatever you need. I mean, it's going to happen, right? And he says, yeah, I know. And if I need anything, I'll tell you. It says, but we feel very loved. That is equipping the saints for the work of service that I don't do a lot. <laughs> it's just all done. Because you're ready and willing. And I love that. But here in Second Timothy 2, this isn't talking necessarily about training lay people. If you're, this is talking about training leaders to lead and train others. This is a, focusing upon the trainers, those who are capable. That's my point. Train the trainer. Train the one who's able to train others. Because when you train others, that... Reduplication will happen there, and, and I, you know, it's a hard task. Um, it's very hard. You know, we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. But, but I trust you know the difference between multiplication and addition. And we're seeing here is the whole principle of uh, multiplication. But let, let let's just think about addition, okay? I thought about maybe some of you kids this might be new, maybe some parents it won't. But it's astonishing me every time I do it. 
I normally, when people say, how many people come to Rock Valley Bible Church? I say about 100, but I think about like 30 families come. We have about 30 families here. And so, let's just think about what growth at Rock Valley Bible Church would mean by addition. So, let's suppose that a new family walks in the door every week and stays at church. Typical family, you know, 12 kids at Rock Valley Bible Church, walks in the door every week. Okay? That's a lot. We're going we're gonna to add a lot to the church that way. And imagine that every week a new family comes and we keep this addition. Okay, so that like right now at the end of the year, let's just start September to September. Okay, how many families would be at Rock Valley Bible Church if we have 30 now? Is that that, Ethan? Can you figure that one out? How many weeks in a year? 52, 30 now plus 52. Can you do that math? Not quite. That's too hard. Dylan, can you do that math? That's too hard. Who can do that math? Who can do it? Yes, can you do it, Stephanie? No way. How many? <laughs> she doesn't know. How many? There'd be 82 families, right? That's a lot of families, all right? And then if we did that for another year, 186 families. No, no, 134 families. 186 at the end of three years. By the end of five years, 290. By the end of ten years... One family every week, that would be 550 families at Rock Valley Bible Church. Now, that, that's, a big, that's a big church. You multiply that by 12 and you've got several thousand. Okay? So, you have several thousand people at Rock Valley Bible Church. Big church, multiple pastors needing. And it would be wonderful, right? I mean, we, we couldn't fit here anymore unless we had 15 services. We couldn't do that. We, we would just have to... Alright, that's, that's addition. Now let's imagine multiplication. Let's just think about each family in this, in this auditorium winning another family for Christ. You know, Philippian jailer dad gets the whole family, everyone baptized right on through because they all believe in, in Christ. And each of these families here grabs one family for the year. So the Reeds have a family just down the street. We have a family down our street. The Hooks have a family down the street. The Weebies have a family down the street. And they just get them, bring them in, see them converted, train them to do the same thing then next year. So at the end of the first year, how many families do we have at Rock Valley Bible Church? Sixty, right? And then everyone, what happens then if every one of those families get another, right? If we, if we multiply that way. So next, next year we'd have 120. And then at the third year, we'd have... 240. At the end of five years of that, we'd have a thousand families at Rock Valley Bible Church. Do that for another five years, we would have 31,000 families at Rock Valley Bible Church. We would be like the biggest church in the nation if we did that. And that's just, and that's, that's within your realm, I think, of just saying, okay, where's a family? Who am I praying for? I hope you all have families you're praying for. We've got plenty of unsaved families that we are praying for, just longing to see to come to Christ in our neighborhood, just reaching out to them, loving them, serving them, doing what we can do, and longing that they would come to Jesus. And, and I hope that you have families like that that you have surrounded you. You can think about, can, can you think about just one family coming to Christ? And you can think about that for ten years. I mean, the biggest church in the world. That's the power of multiplication. Now, that's the ideal, okay? That's like the ideal gas, all right? Um, but we live in a world there are imperfections in that. It doesn't take into account several things. First of all, it doesn't take into account how hard the, process, the training process is. 
I mean, it's difficult to produce a family that's ready to reproduce in a year, much less two or three years of the busyness of life and kids and family and work and, and all the distractions that come with that. It's hard. I mean, in fact, you think about this. Paul and his disciples, but I'm not sure how many disciples he had. You think about chapter 1, verse 18, and what happened. All who were in Asia turned away from me. It's like, you may have had some disciples in Asia, but you know what? They're falling away. They're dropping like the flies. So whatever you had is not working very well, Paul. Or chapter 4, verse 16, in my first defense, no one supported me. All deserted me. So Paul's not at the end of his life having surrounded by you know thousands of people that he's trained up. He's got few and that was after a lifetime of ministry. Oh, there were those faithful until the end. Names come to mind like Timothy and Titus and Luke is with them, Erastus, Tychicus, Onesimus, Onesiphorus. So let's be realistic how fast multiplication can be work. work. And also, it doesn't account for those who, whatever, fall away or don't, or don't get there or don't reproduce in the course of a year. When you fail to do that at the top level, then pretty soon the multiplication gets, gets shattered and that's why we don't see churches of 31,000 families all over the world right now. Just because of the practical difficulties of doing that. But know this, that multiplication is God's plan for the church. It's a method of Jesus. right? He spent three years basically. At the end of it, he had 11 guys is all he had. Three years into 11 and he just poured and poured and poured for three years and basically entrusted the Life of the church to these guys. He trusted they'd impact the world by impacting eleven deeply. And they went and died for Christ. And as Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs seed of the church, so if they all died except for John, it, it spread. It spread fast and spread like wildfire. Now, certainly, the, God was working behind the scenes. It wasn't dependent upon these men. There were problems, though. You think about the early church when the, the leaders were cumbered in Acts chapter 6 about serving the tables. They had to get back and focus. No, you need to train the trainers what they, they needed to do. And then they focused their pension upon training as they had seven men who raised up to take care of the tables. And, and they trained the few deeply rather than the masses. And that's what J. Oswald Sanders says about this process. He says this, "...the training of leaders cannot be done by employing the techniques of mass production." So when you think about trained disciples, don't think Mr. Ford and the assembly line. That's not how it works. Disciples are not manufactured wholesale. Don't think Walmart and Sam's. That's not how you make Home Depot. That's how you make disciples. Rather, they're produced one by one. Think about the man in his shop doing a custom-made craft woodman or whatever. That's disciple-making. One-on-one, small, slow, but then it goes and it multiplies further. It's the way the Christian ministry works. Not done by the masses. It's done by individuals. Not done by addition. Done by multiplication. It's not done by focusing on quantity. It's done by focusing on quality. You know, and other ministries have this in mind. Uh, so you know, I've made trips to Nepal. And while over there, uh, I've, I've teamed up with uh, Leadership Resources. Um, Bill Mills used to be the, the president of that. Craig Perro now is the president. Bill Mills is, is there laboring. Uh, their vision is to go overseas and to uh, be involved in launching pastoral training movements. I mean, that's the niche of what they can do. Just launch these pastoral training movements where they can, particularly in um, poorer nations of people who don't have access to pastoral training. Do you know that across the world, it's something like 95% of pastors have zero 
formal training at all. It's like never having a class, never having nothing. And so whatever can be given to these people who don't really have access to some training would be very helpful. And, and they aren't doing this by having big conferences. They are doing this by having a gathering of 12 to 20 guys. That's all it takes. So a group of 12 is kind of nice. 20 is about tops. They won't take a group of 25. They'll exclude five people because they want to keep it small. They want to keep it more intimate. They're committed to going back to the same place twice a year for four years. Just digging into these 12, 15 guys again and again and again and again because it's slow. But in the training of these guys, they're expecting these guys go and they train other people. And whenever I've been there to teach them, it's always the intent that they're going to pass it on. In fact, every meeting we have, we've had over there, there's always a time, okay, now who did you pass it on to? How is that going? And who did you pass it on to? And how's that going? And who did you pass it on to? And how did that going? How's that going? And they call it TNT, Training National Trainers. At first glance, you might say, that's pretty odd that you would travel. I mean, it's expensive to get overseas. I mean, for me, for a trip, it's about $3,000 to kind of get over there, Right? 2,000 plane tickets, $1,000 for gifts and travel and things like that to help the people out. For 12, 15 guys, eight times for 15 guys. Are you serious? You think if you're going to do that, you're going to have something big. Well, I remember having a conversation with Bill Mills that, that, that pointed it all right. He's a founder of Leadership Resources. And for more than 30 years, he literally traveled the globe and spoke with pastors and leaders and of, of other countries and United States. And, and he told me this. He says, you know, in foreign lands, it's easy to get a big conference of people, especially in poorer nations where you can financially provide. Just kind of come and we'll provide your housing, your food for you. Um, and you just come. He says, it's easy. You can get a lot of people. But what happens is then you speak to them and you have this love thing going on. And then uh, you leave and they take whatever materials they have and they put it on the bookshelf and they wait for another big conference to come where they can be blessed. He said um, to me, he said, Steve, I'm done with that. I don't, I don't think that works very well. He says, but I'm really excited about this TNT methodology. Just, just trusting God's going to accomplish His way. So think about 15 guys. You know, if they, on average, even, even get to 10 other guys. That's like 150 you're impacting. You're not impacting them on a big seminar. You're impacting them in a deep life-to-life way. You just think about your own life. Who is it that's influenced you the most? Is it some speaker off someplace? Or some guy you really know who's life on life with you and really helping you in the trenches. Now, there are helps on the Internet. I mean, th- those are nice. But there are something else about, about other people who you know, who you see, you follow, who you know. And you want to make a big impact on someone else? You be that someone. And you find someone who will be an impact to you. And I can just think about the number of people in my life, the number of people who discipled me just intimately. It's the way to make an impact rather than big conferences. Train people deeply. But it's a hard work. It's slow. I mean, I, I, I think, uh, you know, one of the things, I've taken that, I've kind of felt like the responsibility of, uh, of training guys, hey, pass it on. That's why we've done these pastoral things here in Rockford, just to try to pass it on to some other churches, some other guys. Thinking about even taking that and pushing it down to some leadership here in terms of uh, uh, pushing it down to Sunday school teachers, uh, some other men, you know, kind of just take this simple uh, stuff that we're doing overseas. Just so you might even know when I go to Nepal, oh, that's what you're doing. It's really easy just taking simple hermeneutical principles and applying them. I'm just praying about how to do that, to be training on the trainer. But I, I know that uh, Darren and Phil have been through 
a bit of that, quite a bit with Frank Yonke's help. I know we put a lot of time into Darren and, and Phil. Uh, Phil, probably more time with you than with Darren. Um, just how, how it's worked. Darren's come more trained already. <laughs> Phil, it's been a delight. But it's been a long time. It's been a lot of input. It's been Steve Leston's come up here and trained in some classes together. And just done a lot of things. But it's slow. It's a slow going to rise up other leaders to really train them. But my, my aim is to have those guys spread their ministry. It's so, it's so thrilling to me. In recent days, there have been some people with some difficulties in the congregation. And uh, one's gone to you, Phil. I know one's gone to you, Darren, because these guys I'm trying to promote on Sunday mornings, hey, come to these guys as fellow pastors. I've told both of them, if you've got a burning message, you want to preach, I'm the first guy. I'm sitting down and, Darren, you're preaching anytime you want, right? Open slate, right? And, Phil, you got an open slate as well, right? And these guys know that, and I'm totally fine with that. Totally want them to be involved with that. They've led flocks before, small groups before. I want to do that. I want to get the ministry off of me and on these. Because, think about it then, the more ministries on other people from a leading aspect, I can have a motorcycle accident and we'll be okay. Right? And that's the idea. is to train multiple leaders. And it's slow and it's hard and pray for that process. But that's, that's where we're going a lot from Second Timothy 2 to... And so go to these guys. They are godly men, and I love them greatly. You want to endure in the ministry, be strong in grace, train the trainer. My third point here is pay the price. Pay the price. comes in verses 3 through 7. Suffer hardship with me. There's paying the price right there. As a good soldier of Christ Jesus, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This section of Scripture, I think, just falls off the bone. It just kind of preaches itself, and so I'm going to try to just let it preach itself. We see three illustrations here. The soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Soldier in verses 3 and 4, athlete in verse 5, farmer in verse 6. And then he says, okay, think about these things and draw your conclusion. You know what? I've kind of jump-started that. I think when we think about it, we're going to see that all these men paying the price. That's really the application here, verse 7. That's the, the common thread of all these is that they're paying the price. They're putting in some hard work, but a hard work to a faithful end. Whether it's the soldier, an end. The athlete has an end. The farmer has an end. So let's consider the soldier. He signs up for the army and the moment he writes his signature on the sheet of paper, he's no longer his own. The United States owns him. Armed forces will tell him where to go. Armed forces will tell him what to do. Soldier making one choice, sign his name, has no more choices to make. It's done. He's a slave. Tell him when to sleep, where to sleep, when to rise, what to wear, what to eat, what to act. The soldiers need another part of the country, move him. If you need him in combat, send him. The days of combat are difficult and dangerous. Uh, um, Grant, they're difficult, right? And dangerous? Sure are. I remember talking to one man how difficult it was. He, He was out in the deserts of Iraq and they didn't have any barracks for him, so he slept in the sand. He just kind of took his shovel or his butt of his gun maybe and kind of swept this you know, crevice and slept right there in the open air in the sand in Iraq to keep cool a little bit 
But that's where they slept. That's difficult. And with days on end without shower, minimal food, MREs, dangerous as well. Driving a Hummer through streets of Iraq, dangerous. The roadside bombs have killed many. Right? Now, it's not like there's no benefits. There are lots of benefits to signing up for the armed forces. I mean, this provides everything. Clothing, shelter, food, pay. Government trains in useful skills. Upon discharge, multiple benefits, right? Medical care, tuition help, more mortgages or loans, opportunities, help in securing jobs, funeral benefits, uh, many other things, I'm sure. Like, Grant, you told me that one of your benefits, you have a perpetual fishing license in Illinois, right? How's that? Steve, you'd like one of those, right? Perpetual fishing license. But that's just one of many little little benefits that come out of there. And, and there are benefits in the Christian life as well. So we make, make a commitment to follow Jesus. It's totally worth it. But there's a cost to it as well. It comes with difficulty. And Paul tells him, suffer hardship. Here's how difficult it is. There's hardship coming, so suffer it. Timothy, you're with me in the battle. We're fellow soldiers of Christ Jesus. He's called us to the task of spiritual warfare. We've enlisted. We're on this hard road. It's a difficult course, but let's get it on. That's what he's saying. Suffer hardship, he says, with me. It's not Paul is saying, oh yeah, you go do that hardship thing over there. No, he's saying, you join with me. I'm on the hardship track. You join me on the hardship track. Let's get going. That's what chapter 1 is all about. Chapter 1, verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the Gospel according to the power of God. See that in chapter 3, verse 12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Pastor, people, all who desire. Endure hardship, he says in chapter 4, verse 5. We are soldiers for Jesus Christ. Let's take up our calling. Let's go forth with strength. We're in active service. And there are comforts in life that we just need to pass by because there's a higher calling on our lives. It's the idea here of verse 4, right? No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. There are things about everyday life that we will willingly discard and desire to pursue Jesus as well instead. Piper wrote an excellent book called Don't Waste Your Life. He said that Christians ought to have a wartime lifestyle. Listen to what he said. Sometimes I use the phrase wartime lifestyle or wartime mindset. <clears throat> the phrase is helpful, but it's lopsided. But for me, it's mainly helpful. It tells me there's a war going on in the world between Christ and Satan, truth and falsehood, belief and unbelief. It tells me that there are weapons to be funded and used, but that these weapons are not swords or guns or bombs, but the Gospel and prayer and self-sacrificial love. It tells me the stakes of this conflict are higher than any other war in history. They are eternal and infinite, heaven or hell, eternal joy or eternal torment. And Piper continues, I need to hear this message again and again because I drift into a peacetime mindset as certainly as the rain falls and as flames go up. You say, I feel that too. 
I'm wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call earth home. And before I know it, I'm calling the luxuries needs and using my money just the way that unbelievers do. I begin to forget the war. I don't think much about the people perishing. Missions and unreached people drop out of my mind. I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that looks first to what man can do, not what God can do. It is a terrible sickness. And I thank God for those who have forced me again and again and again towards a wartime mindset. And that's what I'm calling you to because that's what Paul is calling Timothy to, to a wartime mindset when the affairs of everyday life are saying, don't be entangled by those. Instead, ignore them to what we can and realize that our battle is a spiritual, eternal battle ground. So watch the time that you just flitter away. Now rest for sure. Rejuvenate for sure. Right? Enjoy your fishing for sure. But, but think about the many times where it's frittered away where you can be fighting instead. We're soldiers. We're athletes. Verse 5, If anyone competes as an athlete, he is not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The athlete trains for his competition with great dedication. He's careful what he eats, careful enough to get enough sleep, countless hours in the gymnasium or the weight room, depending on his sports. Sport, he watches films of himself. He'll study his competition, looking for weaknesses, work with his teammates, coordinating efforts, and during practices, push himself to the limits of his ability. Running wind sprints, running laps. In fact, I remember my college days. I played a lot of sports in college. Three, soccer, basketball, and baseball. And there were times when the actual game itself was far less vigorous than the practice, for sure. Just so you push yourself in practice so the game is just all fun. You've got the crowd cheering you on. You're not running as much as you ran in practice. You're going on. The athlete, furthermore, in his discipline, will drill skills. Right? The golfer hits hundreds of golf balls every day. Right? The basketball player shoots hundreds of shots every day. The baseball player gets as many pitches as, as he can. From all his friends or whatever, pitch me the ball, i got to hit it. A, a soccer player tries to touch the ball with his feet as many times as possible, up to a thousand times or even more for practice. Quarterback, make as many throws as he can until his arm feels like rubber. Sprinter, practicing getting in and out of the, the racing blocks. A long-distance runner, right, paying attention to his pace. right. I need to run a five-minute mile. How fast can I run it? Well, for me, it's like running a 12-minute mile. How fast can I run a 12-minute mile in pacing? These are the kind of things athletes go through. I remember listening to a man preach a series of four sermons entitled The Christian Life Described by Athletic Imagery. He took the athletic imagery of the Bible and just applied it. He talked about how athletic competition can teach us a lot about submission to authority. You've got to coach. You've got to do what he says. Athletics teaches us about discipline. teaches us about self-control. About hard work. About courage. About teamwork, endurance, and focusing on the goal. Right? And we know about these things, right? I mean, we even have phrases that, that describe, of, um, you know, sports imageries. So, like, if you, if you fail on something, you say, well, I struck out on that one, right? Or if you're going to, you know, like, confuse someone, you say, I don't want to throw them a curveball, right? Or something goes really well, and you say, I hit a home run. I mean, we know, we know these things because sports is in us. Timothy knew them. He had written in 1 Timothy chapter 4 about sports. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline 
The discipline that comes through athletics is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. This holds promise for the present life and also for life to come. In, second, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul speaks about how he needs to run so he might win the prize. Using these imageries. Box in such a way that he might win. And surely Paul, as he spent 15 years with Timothy, used these illustrations as well. And that's what it means to be an athlete. But if you look closely as an athlete, it's not so much on his training as it is upon his, his actual competition. He, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Now, it doesn't exclude everything about training because if you're not training, you're not going to win the prize. You're not going to be prepared. But here it's more about competing rightly and, and using your tools and, and using things that are fair. Like a, a runner can't start to the gun sounds. A football player can't grab the other guy by the face mask. And the basketball player can't stand the lane for more than three seconds. Right? You compete according to the rules so that you might win, but all those rules have been embedded in you with all your training that you have had. And those are the sort of rules you follow to get the prize. And Paul is saying, hey, you're an athlete. You train hard, yes, but play by the rules. And, and as chapter 2, if you look for a theme of chapter 2, it's found in verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed but accurately handling the word of truth. Here it is, Paul is calling Timothy to be a workman. Be a laborer. Right? Be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Right? And you work hard at training the trainer. And here, you endure hardship like a soldier does, and like an athlete does, and like a farmer does. Your tool is the Word of God. And don't wrangle about words when it comes to the Word of God. Don't, don't be involved in worldly and empty chatter. Don't be quarrelsome, but be kind to all. When people are resistant, be, be gentle in correcting them. Train and compete according to the rules because there's a prize at the end of the tunnel. Right? The athlete doesn't win unless he competes according to the rules. But if he competes according to the rules, there is the prize. The crown of righteousness which God has for us. Consider the soldier. Consider the athlete. And thirdly, consider the farmer. Verse 6. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive a share of the crops. I'll make this quick for the sake of time. We can think about a farmer. What does a farmer do? It's a lot of work to be a farmer. you got to manage all the land. you got to you buy your seed. You have to till the ground. You have to plant the seed. You have to care for the plants. You have to weed the field. You have to harvest it. It's, it's just flat out hard work. And if you know have a garden, it's hard work. It's part of the curse. God has designed it so that it is hard work. The weeds. I remember my high school days working in the fields. It's um, in detasseling. Right? You take the tassels off these rows of... How many tasseled when you're younger, right? Some of you, some of you not. Basically, you get up in the morning, you get up at like 5 o'clock in the morning, and uh, you go out and, you know, you've only got a shirt on because you know it's going to get, you know, 110 inside underneath all the corn, which is putting off all this heat and you're really hot. But in the morning, there's all the dew on the, on the, uh, on the plants. You're walking through and you're freezing to death in the morning. And then by the afternoon, you're you're roasting to death. And you're, it was amazing how much I ate when I brought that along. And that's hard work for three thirty-five an hour I remember making back then. And that's, that's just a little bit. I, mean, I, I did find it more fun than a lot of work. We walk up and down the rows in the heat of the day. And that's what farmers do. They just work and, and they work hard. But, but they've got their eye on a prize. right? They've they got their eye on, on something else. And so they're willing to pay the price now so as to get the prize later. 
And that's what Paul says, verse 7 here. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Right? Think about it. And what's he saying? He's saying there's a prize. So go at it hard to get the prize. So you want to have an enduring ministry? Then do these things, right? Be strong in grace. Train the trainer. And pay the price. You know, Michael Phelps didn't get seven gold medals, and eight gold medals, seven world records, one additional Olympic record. He didn't get that by lounging around. He got that because he paid the price unseen by everybody and that came out and he got it. And so also a Christian ministry, Christian life is a lot like that. You're paying the price in the closet. You're paying the price when you're choosing to read your Bible rather than your magazine. You're paying the price when you choose to be bold rather than be quiet. And a lot of those things, quite frankly, are unseen. But God's got the reward. And that's the way to have a, a ministry that endures. Let's pray. Father, I pray You'd take these words, use them in our hearts. God, I pray that at Rock Valley Bible Church we would be soldiers for Christ. That we would be athletes for Christ. That we would be farmers for Christ. That we would willingly endure hardship because we know that the end is worth the means. Oh God, may we not quit on the means. May we press on and endure until the end. God, may we be strengthened by the graces in Christ Jesus. And teach us how to do that. God, may we train trainers. I think in every family we have trainees who are going to be trainers someday as parents that we can teach as well. If we're not married, don't have kids, God, I pray that You would help us to find others whom we can impact in their lives. And help us, O oh Lord, to pay the price. You paid the ultimate price. We don't need to pay you back. That's a distortion of the Gospel. It's just heresy. God, but we're, we're paying the price because we know how worthy the price is that You've paid for us in Jesus Christ upon the cross. So help us, O oh Lord, in these things. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.